Our text this morning is from Colossians 3, 1 through 4, and you'll find this passage on page 984 in the Bible in the chair in front of you. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Amanda. You may be seated. You all probably knew that already, though. We continue in Colossians. We're now entering Colossians 3. And as I mentioned last week, we're on a beginning, a, a kind of a four-week emphasis on the topic of identity in Christ. That's because that's where this passage is going. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to look at these few short verses and what they have to say for us in our encouragement as followers of Christ this morning. Father in heaven, this morning already we have declared that there is no better place in our life than at your right hand. We have sung songs that declare that when we are attacked, when we go through difficulty, there is only one place to look, and that is up at Jesus Christ. We've seen the sacrament of baptism. We've seen and made our confession of faith. We believe that you are God, the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, this morning through this sermon that you would draw us closer in belief, draw us out of our unbelief. Every one of us in one way or another meant what we said and also didn't mean what we said and sang and prayed. And so Lord, I pray that you would draw us nearer to the source this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, this word identity, uh, there's probably uh, not many words in our culture right now that have so many different connotations, connections, and meanings. And um, so as we jump into this idea of our identity in Christ, I think we all have some kind of connectedness to what our, our, we're going through in our world, which is basically an identity crisis. Identity crisis. Um, I am not a psychologist, and so I did a little bit of research this week on what exactly an identity crisis is. Um, and so here's a definition that I, that I found this week. An identity crisis is a period of severe disillusionment when your identity is based on a role or relationship that has been changed or removed. Think about this. So you base your identity, who you are, on this thing, and when that thing goes away, that moment afterwards is the crisis. What am I? Who am I? What we thought we were no longer computes. Here's some examples. Um, being someone that turned 40 uh, recently, uh, age changes can be an identity crisis. Well, I thought I was young, but I guess I'm halfway to 80 now. Um, the, so, and, and midlife crisis, this is the, the, the crisis where we're, the people, people are asking, do I still have it? And the answer is no, stop trying. Um, 
Maybe the loss or the change of a job. Now, this doesn't mean you're just fired from your job, but even retirement or, or changing careers. You, you find yourself in this place where you thought you knew who you were and it was based on this other thing and now that thing is gone, you find yourself in a confused situation. Empty nests. If you have identified yourself as a parent and either one or all of your children have gone away and you find yourself in a place of saying, I don't know who I am anymore. That's an identity crisis. Illness, if you thought of yourself as a healthy, active person, and now I have challenges in that area, that can be a moment of crisis, the loss of a loved one, not even just through death, but when relationships change and come and go, we can uh, lose our identity or, or have a crisis of identity if we have been defining ourselves by that relationship. And I would say, uh, in my own estimation, and many of you might agree, that our world is in a full-on identity crisis. And why is that? Why is the world full of so many confused and hurting people? Because that's what that is. That's what that is. If you want to find the base layer, the very beginning of this crisis, it comes from the fact that the world in general refuses to accept the role of God in their lives. The role of God in their lives. And so the world, what's it trying to do? If you reject God, the foundation of who you are, you're madly trying to find all the other solutions that can't possibly be solutions. And so the world's solution for their crisis of identity is really, okay, I will find something, but it just can't be one thing. It can't be God. It can't be. And so what are we left with? By the way, that's the same problem we see in Genesis 3, right? We're replacing God with ourselves. One author I was reading this week said that sin has so corrupted our thinking and our feeling and that corruption causes us to do a few things. One, we've heard these things over and over again from this pulpit and from the scriptures, especially in Colossians, but we, when we are dealing with the corruption of our thinking and our emotions, it, it causes us to attempt to control all of our circumstances, to attempt to control all of our circumstances, to determine that there, is, there can't be an absolute truth, to determine our own moral boundaries, and then to set self-fulfillment as our highest purpose. Sounds very, very familiar. <laughs> and so when we live our lives this way, determining our own truth, determining our own morals, determining what is best for me, what do we end up? We end up with these lives hyper-fixated on, on the here and now, on the me and my, and everybody comes together with a mishmash of individual ideas that are confused and we're hurting and we don't know what's going on. An identity crisis. And church, we are not immune from this. This is not something we're saying, well, poor people out there. We, we struggle with our identity. Identity is such a, a piece of Western culture. We're all wondering who we are. We're wondering who we are. And so we may not personally be participating in what we might label as extreme versions of identity crisis. But listen, we are on the search for identity, and it's a difficult journey and we can easy, very easily enter crisis mode when we move off anything but our identity in Jesus Christ, which we do every day. And it's not just an inconvenient thing or a sad thing. Listen to Jeremiah 2.13. Listen to what uh, God was saying through the prophet Jeremiah to his people. He says this, for my people have committed two evils, evils. 
One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. That's the first thing they've done. Secondly, they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Think about an identity crisis in this imagery. You dig for yourself a well that you think is going to nourish and hydrate your family and you come back to it and it's completely empty. Well, what what did I do wrong? What's going on here? When we look to anything but Christ for for our identity, we find crisis. And so here is what this passage, these four verses, I hope are for us this morning. I hope it's a big hug to those who are confused, those who are hurting, those who are struggling, those who are sinners. We've abandoned God in our identity. We've dug out broken cisterns that hold no water and we're left in crisis. And so if you're just at the beginning, for young people, if you're just at the beginning of this journey, figuring out who you are, there's no better place to go than a passage like this. There's answers for you here. If you're in a place of your life where you feel like, yeah, I I know who I am, there's no better place to check your work than a passage like this. If you've entered a time in your life where you feel just absolutely lost and confused and cloudy, I don't know who I am, I don't know what's going on, there's no better place to find answers and comfort than a passage like this. Or if you're in that part of life, you're trying to prove that you still got it, there's no better place to stop all that nonsense than right here at the passage like this. And the solution that we have before us is that we have a solid foundation. We have, Christian, an identity, and our identity is in Jesus Christ. That's it. The, The foundational truths in this passage give us a sturdy foundation from the truths we find in this passage. We have strength, we have confidence to face the more uncertain, painful, confusing times in our life. And what's beautiful about the way Paul has written this in the original language is he gives us a past, a present, and a future reason to believe this. He shows us that that our identity in Christ, it touches every aspect of our lives, past, present, future. And so we're going to see, as we just study these four simple verses, how Jesus Christ surrounds and invades our lives. And so that's the outline for today, past, present, future. Uh, Pretty easy. Um, First, let's look at the past, the past. There are two words in this passage that are in the past tense, and they are died and raised. So let's look at this. The death and the resurrection of Christ in our past is a foundation of our identity. Look at verse three with me. We're gonna jump around just a little bit to handle these things chronologically. Verse three, for you have died, past tense, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We're gonna get to that last section after the comma in a moment. We're gonna look at first the death of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus Christ in bodily form, God uh, God in the flesh died on the cross, he physically ceased to function. That's what happened. He wasn't sleeping. He wasn't pretending. He died. And what the scriptures teach is that in our union with Christ, in our union with Christ, this this mystical, mysterious, powerful thing done by the Holy Spirit where we were there with him in his death, as he died, this death caused us to die to our old selves is the way we'll see it in Colossians 3. 
the next couple weeks. Romans 6, Paul also writing here says this. It's another way of looking at this or the same way of looking at it in another passage. We know that our old self, our old self was crucified, past tense, with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So you see this old self, new self language. And so what we are seeing here, what Paul is making, the point he's making in in verse three is this, that the power of sin in our lives is broken. It's broken by the death of Christ and our union with Christ. And so because of the death that has already occurred in the past tense, we are free and empowered to obey and to follow. So yes, I think as Christians, we, we, we understand the death of Jesus signifies that the punishment for our sin was satisfied. Absolutely. Atonement. Also, as it talks about Paul again in 2 Corinthians 5, in Christ, when we have faith, we are a new creation. The old has come to an end. The new has come to fruition. The new is born. And so as one author this week put it, our death with Christ, what has it done? Not just forgiven us from our sins, but it's created, as he put it, a drastic split from our old life. A drastic split. We've died with Christ, past tense. Not only have we died, as he says in verse 1, if you have then been raised with Christ, and he gives a command. So we have been raised with Christ. Not only has the old been separated from us, sin, the power of sin broken, but this new thing is born. And so faith that we witness today in this baptism of this young lady, faith is an act of spiritual life. It's something new. It's not an intellectual thing. It's something God has done in our hearts. He's raised us from the dead. And so in the life of the Christian, there's these realities based on the past work of Jesus that sin is dead, Jesus is alive, and being raised with Christ, it signifies something. It signifies a new life. New life. And what is that life meant for? To, we're free to obey, empowered by the Holy Spirit and follow Jesus. And so this past tense thing, the work of Jesus Christ, is the basis of who we are. It's the basis of who, if then you have been, and for you have, these are things that Paul is stating are true about the Christian. It's happened. The work of Jesus, his death and resurrection, is the foundation of our identity, who we are. His death and his resurrection are the rich soil that the sprout of our identity springs from. It's the firm ground that we stand on, that we maneuver through life from. And here's the beautiful thing. This is why the past tense foundation of our identity is such good news, because we can do nothing to change it. We can do nothing to modify its promises. We can't redo it, undo it, or reinvent it. It is what it is, and Christ has already done it. That's it. That's the basis of our, our identity. What Christ has done is done, and by grace, through faith, it's also done for us. That's it. It's over. That's our identity. So this finished work of Jesus Christ, it's gifted to us by grace. And what does it give us? It gives us assurance, assurance that we are accepted by God in Christ, 
that we have security in our salvation in Christ, that we have significance in a purpose and a, and a, and a trajectory where in Jesus Christ. This reality is the foundation for life. And as one theologian, Raymond, puts it, he says, Scripture teaches that we are unified with Christ and that unity comes into play as we are in transition from wrath to grace. Think about this. We're in transition from wrath to grace where we start our life under the, 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 the curse of sin, destined for wrath, but as Christ brings us to faith, God brings us to faith, we are now being brought into grace. And that transition takes place over time. And this transition that we're in from wrath to life, uh, from wrath to grace is called life. And so then we come to these two words in this passage that are in the present tense, two verbs. So we have this foundational principle, the work of Jesus, unchanging, unchangeable. And it means significant things for us. And now we're being connected with that to how we live our lives now. And these two verbs we can see First in verse 1 and then in verse 2. So look at verse 1 again with me. If then you have been raised with Christ, there's the identifying principle. Here's the command. Seek the things that are above. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So what does this word seek mean? It means to try and get something diligently. It's not like my children look for things. Okay, I love you guys, but uh, hey, where's my water glass? It's right there by you. I don't see it. I don't see my water glass. It's right there, okay? It's, it's actually looking for something really. I bought them ice cream yesterday, so they were, I, I got a freebie on that one. Um, it's to look for, investigate, consider, deliberate. It's a very intentional process of looking for something. Think about the parables in Luke where the, the, the woman lost her coin or the man lost his sheep. They didn't just kind of look around casually. They went out and found it and did not tire in doing so. So what? Seek the things above. Verse 2, set your minds on things, guess where? That are above, not things that are on earth. Set your minds to direct one's attention and thought on something, to concentrate this is not, the concept here is not touch and go with the things above when we have time. This is uh, to, 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 to put our minds, to marinate, to meditate. This idea here is this, it's kind of like with family time. If you don't spend quantity time with your family, you can't expect to have quality moments. And so what do you do? You spend quantity time with your children to find those quality moments. The same thing goes for scripture, for, for thinking of God, for thinking of Christ. The more we think about him, the more we marinate and marinate in those things. So, but in both of these things, we're told to seek or set our mind on something very specific, the things above. And the reason is that that is where Christ is seated. Now that's figurative language, denoting honor, the highest honor, that's what he's getting at here. But we, we focus on Christ, why? Because that is where our life is hidden. It says here in verse three, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now if that's not confidence, I don't know what is. One. 19th century theologian, you can't talk like this anymore, this doesn't come naturally. He said this about this verse, it's a double rampart, both divine. You can't, you can't come up with that now. It's double guarded. It is with Christ in God. And so what is our true life? What is life? 
Life is not the collection of problems that we have. Life is not the relationships or the roles that we play. Our life doesn't consist of what others think of us or what their expectations are of us. Life isn't our job, our family, our friends. What is our life? Our life, our true life is Christ. It is Christ. Our life is Christ and it's in Christ. And so as unified members of the body, what is our life? Focus, Jesus, his work, his calling, his commands, his grace, his love. Talking, I, I'm still studying uh, this passage with another pastor, another church, Pastor Jerry, and we were talking this week on Wednesday about what we discovered, and he made this point that what we think about determines what we desire, and what we desire is what we give our life to. That's the concept here. If we're touch and go with the things above, we're going to be touch and go with our desires for the things above. This is where it's good to know that the good things in life these things can become the things we desire most. And if we desire the good things in life more than we desire God, they become fuel for our sin. That's what they are. And so when we meditate on God's word, we obey Christ's commands, and we think of Christ and who he is and what he has done, this is something that actually truly changes our heart and changes our life. And so what is the life of the Christian? According to this passage, the life of the Christian proceeds this way, to seek and to set our minds on things above. And so the Christian life then is this, to intentionally discover and live the ramifications of the gospel. That's the Christian life. In every situation we come to, in every obstacle we face, what are we called to do? To intentionally discover and live by the ramifications of the gospel. And so we see here, I hope, how the foundation of the past work of Christ informs our lives, but that's not the only thing that we have to help us in our identity. We also have the capstone. If, if the work of Christ is the foundation, there's something else, the capstone of our identity, and it is the future promises of Christ. And we have some words here pointing to the future. Look at verse four. When Christ, who is your life, appears, future tense, sorry microphone, then you also will, future tense, appear with him in glory. What is he talking about? When he appears, I'll appear. The meaning of this is when the complete newness of Christ is before our eyes, when we are in eternity with Jesus, our complete newness will also be before our eyes. When we see Jesus completely unfiltered, we will see the renewing of ourselves as well, the fullness of our life in Jesus Christ. This brings up the point, church, that we are not saved to enjoy this life. That's hard, sorry. We're not saved to enjoy this life. We're saved and prepared in this life for the true enjoyment of eternity. That's what we're called to. We're saved for heaven. Now, I was talking with someone this week who was just mentioning that we don't talk about heaven a lot in American church. And his thought was because maybe our lives are 
okay, we, we don't need something better. We are pretty satisfied with what we have. But church, listen, if we truly understood what it meant to appear with Christ in glory, if we understood what heaven is promised to us, if we understood what we're being prepared for now, this place that has no downside, an eternity of pure satisfaction, we would find the things of this world to be lackluster. So we have this foundation of our identity and what Jesus Christ has done. It can't be undone. We have this future thing that we are looking forward to that can't be changed. Jesus Christ has set it in stone. The target is set. And we live in between those things. Called to what? Seek and set our minds. Now we're going to get into the practical things of that in the next couple weeks. But what we need to hear this morning is that our present life, our present life today, this Sunday in May, Yesterday, tomorrow, the difficulties, the victories, the failures, and all those days and every day of our lives, every one of those things, what, is hemmed in on all sides by the work, the power, and the love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's our identity. That's our identity. And so, the entirety of our lives, Christian, should be devoted to living as if those realities are true. As if flesh and the physical and the temporary and the perishable are defined by the spirit, the eternal, the substance, as we heard last week, that Jesus Christ holds for us. And so let's talk application. Let's talk about what this means. If the death and the resurrection and the return of Jesus Christ and our participation in it by grace through faith, if it's the most relevant and potent truth in our life, what does that mean for us really? Because it is. The death, the resurrection, the return of Christ, the most potent truth, the most important truth in our life. And so we can take that, that concept and take any situation we're failing and the, and, or, or facing and the gospel has something to say about it. Let's think about difficult decisions. Difficult decisions. When we're facing difficult decisions, guess what? The Father knows about it. Jesus understands the difficulty of it. The Holy Spirit is holding us up in that difficulty. No situation is outside their knowledge, their control, or their love. And so the work of Christ and our destiny of heaven informs that moment. It should give us relief. It should give us relief. How about dealing with a recurring sin? When we undergo the guilt and the shame of that thing, we have to remember we have the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. We have the soothing balm of sure forgiveness, not because we're a good person, because Jesus gives it and it can't be undone. It can't be ungiven. We have the assurance that God does not turn his face away in shame on account of Christ. We have the process of repentance. We have the Holy Spirit in us to fight the fight we cannot fight ourselves. We have the body of Christ. And guess what? This whole body here is just a collection of sinners going through their own stuff. And we need one another. We need accountability. We need encouragement. And God has, in his grace and his love, given that to us. We need to confess and walk together toward holiness. We have the beautiful promise 
of sinlessness and eternity. Wow, what a comfort that is. A day is coming, promised to us in Jesus Christ, where we will be unable to sin. Praise the Lord. What about tragedy? These things, the death of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and this for sure eternity in him, it allows us to not have the answers right here, right now. We don't have to have all the answers. We can grieve with Christ because Christ knows grief. Christ knows it. We can be comforted by his knowledge, his love, his power now. We can be comforted by the fact that when eternity comes, all things will be made right. The perfect justice of God will reign. So when it comes to the topic of who we are, and we're asking this question, who, who am I? Who am I? What's my identity? Listen, we are created with a purpose. We are loved we're saved, we're secured all in Jesus Christ and no other place. This is our identity. This identity from the past and the future informs the call of our life here and now. And so we don't have to, we don't have to drift in a sea of confusion wondering, who am I? What's going on? Our calling is to hear and accept what Christ says about us. It's the next couple of weeks, as I mentioned just a moment ago, Paul gets very practical. He's going to give us lists. What's more practical than lists? He gives us lists of ways we ought not to live and ways we should live and what this means. We're going to get into that. But this morning, what I really believe we need is a big hug from this gospel truth. Jesus defines who we are. He defines who we are. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to be confused. We don't have to hurt. We have to accept Jesus Christ and the gospel provides everything that we need. So this morning as we approach the table, the Lord's Supper, I think it's appropriate to admit that we cause ourselves unnecessary anxiety. We cause ourselves unnecessary anxiety. We cause ourselves needless confusion and pain. And here's the reality. We may not always understand what it means with our finite minds and hearts, but all that we need is Jesus Christ. All we need is Jesus Christ. And the Lord's Supper is a good opportunity, a perfect opportunity to take a moment and shake off all these false identities that we take on every day. Oh, I am my job. I am my relationships. I am this. I am that. None of those things hold water. Only Jesus Christ. And so in recognizing that God is the source of our identification, we can confidently confess our imperfect feelings about God. We can confess our confusion. We can confess our striving after false identities. We can confess our selfishness and wanting to establish our own identity. And we can come this morning and eat this bread and drink this wine or juice knowing that Christ loves us, forgives us, and accepts that us, and that's a reality in Christ. So let's take a moment and consider whether this supper is for us. If you confess these things would be true, that you are a sinner in need of grace, and the only place for that grace is Jesus Christ, 
If you've made that profession, you've been baptized, you're welcome, invited as a friend, accepted, secure to come and eat. But if you don't believe those things, the scriptures make it clear this is not the time or the place for a snack. It's just not, not what it's for. It means something much more significant. And so if you don't believe these things, it is right and good that you abstain this morning. We ask that you recognize that in yourself as well. So let's take a moment and pray. Let's consider what false identities we might be holding on to. And as we step forward and eat this morning, may we see the power of Christ push those things off of us. And may we be more established in our identity in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as it says in the Valley of Vision, in its prayer on union with Christ, we as humans are made for your glory and we, when we are not an instrument of your glory, we are nothing. So, Father, use this supper to continue the process of removing idolatry from us, false identities. Convict us in our hearts this morning of the sin of abandoning you for other identities. Set our minds on the things above. Cause us to seek you, Lord. May the taste of this bread and the taste of this wine or juice be a tangible reminder of the sufficient nourishment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't need these other things. We only need Christ. And so may our eating of this meal this morning be used plunge us deeper into the loving, enduring, assuring flood of God's love for us. Pray that you would bless this meal in that way. In the name of Jesus, amen.